Welcome to the Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Ricky, today we're going to talk about how elite university presidents are under fire for some controversial testimony in front of the U.S. House. We'll examine that fallout. Uh, then Democratic lawmakers have proposed a bill forcing hedge funds and private equity funds to divest from their ownership in single family homes. We'll discuss whether that's a good idea. And then finally, Biden is gearing up to seize some drug patents. And we're going to decide, like, is this an election year political pandering stunt or is it sound populist policy? All of that and more. I could not have better timed the imminent like self-detonation of the elite Ivy League colleges at exactly this point in time that we're talking about free speech and cancel culture in our book. Um, So that was pretty fortuitous in that sense. They've just cratered in their credibility recently. But the most shocking testimony that I think I've probably seen in Capitol Hill in a while is seeing Claudine Gay, the president of Harvard, Liz McGill, the president of UPenn, um, and also the MIT president who last week were uh, brought forth in front of the House of House Committee on the Workforce and Education about anti-Semitism on campus. And since then, the UPenn president, Liz McGill, has resigned. But Claudine Gay, the president of Harvard, is remaining in in her position um, and has not been removed. Um, and meanwhile, the Department of Education is investigating both those schools. I don't think they're also investigating MIT, but definitely UPenn and Harvard for Title VI discrimination violations as 73% of current college students say that they've seen or been um, the target of anti-Semitism since October 7th. And the exchange between Elise Stefanik and the UPenn president, Liz McGill, was pretty fiery and I think just worth a listen here. If the speech turns into conduct, it can be harassment. Yes. I am asking, specifically calling for the genocide of Jews, does that constitute bullying or harassment? If it is directed and severe or pervasive, it is harassment. So the answer is yes. It is a context-dependent decision, Congresswoman. It's a context-dependent decision. That's your testimony today. Calling for the genocide of Jews is depending upon the context. That is not bullying or harassment. This is the easiest question to answer yes, Ms. McGill. So is your if testimony it, that it, you will not answer yes? If it uh, is, if the, yes speech or becomes, no. if the speech becomes conduct, it can be harassment. Yes. Conduct meaning committing the act of genocide? The speech is not harassment. This is unacceptable, Ms. McGill. I'm going to give you one more opportunity for the world to see your answer. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's code of conduct when it comes to bullying and harassment? Yes or no? It can be harassment. The answer is yes. So, Ricky, I'm fascinated to hear your perspective on this as somebody who comes from that sort of fire world. And mm-hmm. I would imagine you're, you want a pretty broad reading of the culture of free speech on campuses. I'll, I'll read you what Yasha Monk wrote in The Atlantic, and, I, and I'm curious whether you agree with this. He said, quote, in a narrow technical sense, the three presidents were correct to state that their current policies would probably not penalize offensive political speech. In a more substantive sense, universities should defend a very broad definition of academic freedom one that shields students and faculty members from punishment for expressing a political opinion, no matter how abhorrent, end quote. Do you agree with Yasha on that? Yes, I do. But what I think is the shocking part here is just this remarkable change of tone entirely over this specific issue, 
where you have the the president of Harvard saying that the free exchange of ideas is the foundation upon which Harvard is built. Like meanwhile, in our book, we we profiled this woman, Carol Hooven, who literally got harassed and squeezed out of her job because she went on Fox News and said that biological sex is real, but even still we should respect people's pronouns or treat them with with compassion, but not, you know, ignore biological reality. And that's the sort of free speech culture that they've cultivated on their campus. At Harvard, they have, and UPenn, they have discriminatory harassment policies that relate to bullying, hostile, and abusive behavior. So they're suddenly coming to the realization that, oh, we should, as an institution, have viewpoint neutrality, that we shouldn't have overly broad speech codes on campus that have been abused and applied against people for a whole host of absolutely absurd and innocuous speech. Um, that's, at least in my view, falls pretty far below the threshold of chanting intifada on a, a college campus. And then all of a sudden now they're they're hiding behind the valence of free speech and purporting as though that's like some sort of foundational value that they've been holding so closely. However, that's plainly not the case. And that is demonstrably not has not been the case at any of these schools. Harvard was the lowest ranked free speech or campus for free speech. In the country, according to Fire, UPenn was down there al- along with them, I think in the bottom yeah, 10. second to last, second to last UPenn. And yeah. make no mistake that it's not a coincidence that these ultra elite schools where different viewpoints can't come together in a healthy, robust debate, including different viewpoints on the Israel-Palestine conflict or a civil conversation about it. I mean, for decades, free speech has suffered on these campuses. These administrators have completely turn their back on those values that should underpin academia. And that's precisely why they're having such extreme viewpoints bubbling up on their campuses. Because when kids feel like they can't have a conversation, when they when they can't touch third rail topics, which obviously this is one right now, they go underground, they fester, they're on TikTok watching like Osama bin Laden praise videos of random Zoomers reading his letter to America and apparently liking it. Like these... People go down down polarization rabbit holes when they can't have civil conversation and when when differing viewpoints can't interact in a healthy way. And then when you have a moment of tension, then you have Harvard students coming out for Hamas as a result of the fact that there has just not been a free speech culture. And then all of a sudden, yes, I mean, I'm glad that that apparently free speech is now from this point forward going to be the bedrock of, of Harvard's campus. But I mean, I, I just... It so plainly hasn't been. And the lack of consistency and the irony of seeing these schools that have drifted the furthest away from that North Star be the ones that are now being forced to to hide behind it or suddenly reclaim it is pathetic. Yeah, but I think like there, there's a critical question. I agree with I agree that this is hypocritical for sure. And, you know, David from wrote an excellent piece that we'll we'll put in the show notes. And he said, quote, progressives who once argued that free speech is violence now claim that violence is free speech, end quote. And he goes through a litany of examples where in this context of this sort of debate over Israel-Palestine, both on campuses and outside of campuses, we're equating speech with actual acts that are acts in the real world that either disrupt other people's ability to go about their lives or in certain cases, like throwing paint on businesses or obstructing people's ability to walk or get about the world or getting up in people's faces or using violence, people are calling that free speech too. And progressives, and I use this term loosely because there's a lot of progressives that listen to this 
who don't agree with any of that, most of them probably, but like there's a certain brand of progressives now that have been saying speech is violence, but now are Mm -hmm. uh, trying to protect the acts I just described. But there's, I think there's an interesting conundrum though, one that I think showed up both in Yasha's piece in the Atlantic and previous appearances that he's had on this podcast, which is, well, how do you respond to hypocrisy, right? When somebody's hypocritical, what is the next move? And in this case, I think there is an interesting strategic question for defenders of free speech, like you, like fire, which is, do you embrace this new rhetoric, right? Like, and say, all right, well, now, now you're saying that you have a culture of free speech. So instead of forcing you, as Stefanik and others are trying to do to get you to uphold your previous restrictive approach and try to like adhere to that, maybe we say, all right, stay permissive moving forward. And I'm, one thing that worries me is that like now it's going to be, now we're keeping with the old standards, I guess is my point. You know what I'm saying? Like if we just move forward and, and say the past is prologue, I don't know. I, I'm not sure that's the way to move forward either. Well, the thing that is another element of the hypocrisy here, though, is like these schools do have overly broad conduct codes that I wouldn't be surprised. And this is speculation, but I, w- I wouldn't be surprised if a year ago before this conflict, if someone couldn't be under the the discriminatory harassment and bullying policies, you know, kicked out of Harvard for deliberately misgendering a classmate or something like there are like speech is not contractually guaranteed by these schools anymore because they have developed these overly broad policies, which should be changed. Absolutely. It's just fascinating to see the sudden flip on them. Um, I would love to see Harvard rewrite their policies to reflect the the threshold of actual discrimination. I think the Title VI investigation will be interesting to see what they can actually pull out. Um, because I also agree that there's, I mean, there's a whole host of chants and sayings that are highly inflammatory and highly insulting and vaguely incitement. I mean, I agree that there's not an explicit, well, I don't know. I, I won't, I won't go further than that, but there are, there are a whole host of, of mantras and, and chants. And um, I think they fall along a gradient and figuring out where to draw that line is difficult. Um, however, it is and has been done by the first amendment and applying first amendment standards to academic institutions is an ideal. They can't do that unless they rewrite these harassment codes. I, if they do so, and I think that they probably will, and they'll probably stop sending out these, these institutional statements on like the death of George Floyd or Kyle Rittenhouse's acquittal as well. I think that viewpoint neutrality is around the corner. However, I- See, I'm, I actually think it's the opposite. I think that this is going to lead to even more of that. Oh, no, I don't think so. I absolutely don't think that that it will. I think it'll- lead to a line in the sand where we say we're an institution made of people with opinions because they're going to stick their foot in their mouth no matter what they say. And now there's so much more of a microscope being placed on them. I think that they will absolutely start adhering to viewpoint neutrality because this is no longer just a a clean right-left break. But regardless, my point being, they should rewrite the harassment policies to make clear the line of incitement and creating a hostile learning environment, which is a fair threshold. However, I am completely sympathetic to Jewish people or Jewish students or Jewish donors who say this is a really revealing and disturbing time to just suddenly say we're going to allow free speech in in the most unfettered way because this is the 
catalyst and not because we actually believe in it. Well, that's <laughs> you, bizarre. You and I are aligned on that. And I and I think like the sudden move to use sort of lawyered careful language was notable. Uh, and it was notable yeah. also by the Harvard president. Let's go to a clip of President Claudine Gay, who somehow survived all of this. This is a clip from her testimony. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment? Yes or no? It can be, depending on the context. What's the context? Targeted as an individual. Targeted as, at an individual. It's targeted at Jewish students, Jewish individuals. Do you understand your testimony is dehumanizing them? Do you understand that dehumanization is part of anti-Semitism? I will ask you one more time. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment? Yes or no? Anti-Semitic rhetoric. When it and is it anti-Semitic rhetoric? Anti-Semitic rhetoric when it crosses into conduct that amounts to bullying, harassment, intimidation, that is actionable conduct and we do take action. So the answer is yes. So obviously the president of Harvard is using, I think, language that she worked out with her PR team or lawyers, whatever, and is, you know, keeps settling back to it. I think, you know, what, what you, if you watch the full hearing, there's a lot of avoiding yes or no questions, which I guess could be understandable in a certain context. But I think what people are left wondering is like, if you juxtapose that against the way that both Claudine Gay and others, uh, administrators of these schools have reacted to almost every other left-wing call for, uh, statements and justice for this or that issue, it's notable the difference. However, there's a second part of this, Ricky, where I do think there's an important question of academic freedom. This clip will both expose, I think, the hypocrisy of these presidents, but also an important area for folks like FIRE to decide, all right, where, what kind of speech are we protecting on university campuses? Let's go to this next part of this, this testimony. Ms. Stefanik, you're recognized for five minutes. Dr. Gay, a Harvard student calling for the mass murder of African Americans is not protected free speech at Harvard, correct? Our commitment to it's free speech... It's a yes speech. or no question. Is that corrected? Is that okay for students to call for the mass murder of African Americans at Harvard? Is that protected free speech? Our commitment to free speech... It's a yes extends. or no question. Let me ask you this. You are president of Harvard, so I assume you're familiar with the term intifada, correct? I've heard that term, Yes. And you understand that the use of the term intifada in the context of the Israeli-Arab conflict is indeed a call for violent armed resistance against the state of Israel, including violence against civilians and the genocide of Jews. Are you aware of that? That type of hateful speech is personally abhorrent to me. Well, Ricky, I, I, obviously the hypocrisy is noticeable on a lot of these issues. But one thing that I am, I'm left wondering is like this line of questioning around the intifada, right? I was in a college campus uh, in a 9-11 setting. And my buddy on my dorm floor, uh, who grew up with me in Staten Island, lost his father to 9-11. Um, he was a cop. And tensions were really high. There were Muslim students. There were Jewish students. This was during the Second Intifada. The 9-11 context was going on, Afghanistan, eventually the Iraq War. Yet we had a really good debate on campus around, for example, what does Intifada mean, right? And I came out of that not fully coming to a conclusion. We're thinking like, all right, some people are saying it's just a struggle. Some people are saying it's an armed struggle. In this case, Stefanik is saying like in certain cases, it means the the killing of civilians. I certainly have my opinion about 
who like if I would want to spend time with somebody who embraces the the concept in any way. But I'm left wondering, like, isn't the university exactly the kind of setting where people should be free to discuss what that means? I don't know. I don't think that what they're talking about is a like classroom discussion about what this term means. This is and I also don't think that at that point in time, and I'll make a prediction, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I would imagine that at that point in time, you'd find it difficult to imagine that two decades later, college students would be chanting that in mass on UPenn's campus. Like, it's not a philosophical conversation that people are having, I think. Um, and there's a lot of talking past each other. Um, I mean, I, I agree. Consistently, like NYU, the, um, the I think the second highest ranked issue that people feel that they can't talk about on campus is the Israel-Palestine conflict. If we had had a decades-long civil and, you know, maybe understandably tense an emotional but civil conversation about the realities of that part of the world. I don't think that we would end up at a point like this. Also, I mean, in the wake of, of 9-11, there were three professors who were fired. And one of Greg's, I think the first time Greg was ever on TV was on CNN defending someone who had like literally said that America had it coming and that really heinous stuff like immediately as the the rubble was still smoking. Um, and that's the, the threshold for free speech. I'm not, I mean, I think that you... Go back to the Skokie trials and and the fact that we do want to tack towards as much permissiveness as possible. I do think that there is a point where there's a contractual obligation of these universities to make sure that people literally feel safe. And there's that's that's a obviously subjective situation, but I think that there have been some instances where like students are getting mobbed or or can't leave libraries because of their identity, that that that's a different conversation for sure. But I think the thing to call out vigorously here is that the catalyst for realizations of such basic fundamental values that should have underpinned academia for the past several decades, the, the catalyst for it is atrocious. And I'm more than happy to see these presidents grilled and made to actually account for the fact that they've turned their backs entirely on all of these principles and then all of a sudden now feel the need to hide behind them when they should feel completely confident and secure in coming in and saying, this has always been our policy. We've doled it out and dished out any sort of discipline across the board in a consistent and ideologically and viewpoint neutral way for decades. And this is our record and we're proud of it. And this is how we're going to handle this conflict. That would have been the ideal. And I just, I think that all the scrutiny here is entirely right. I do not agree that the university should have removed the presidents. However, I mean, I think that the fact that Liz McGill pretty much changed her course um, entirely in the following day said that a call for genocide is threatening deeply so. It would be harassment and intimidation. Entirely did a 180. I mean, these these positions have such high turnaround. I don't think any of them have been around for more than a couple of years on the campus. And if you want to resign, I, I mean, I, I understand why she resigned. That makes perfect sense. But I also think that's the individual president's decision to be made. And I agree with the people who signed letters um, in defense of Claudine Gay at least being given the opportunity to stay. My final analysis on this is like, I agree with you 100% on the hypocrisy. I think this is not genuine you know, this standing on free speech grounds, this claim that like this bedrock principle of free speech is what's animating any of this. Honestly, it's honestly the best argument for the existence of anti-Semitism that this is what has compelled these universities who have yeah, been so resistant exactly. until now 
to acknowledge this. On the flip side, when I look at Elise Stefanik, she has her own hypocrisy to deal with on this, but I do think that beyond that, the hypocrisy game on the Hill, we'd be here for years trying to parse through the many, many people on the Hill on both sides of the aisle who are hypocritical on this and many other issues. But I do think we need to be careful when she starts going, well, okay, we're chance of uh, genocide, right? I'm with her. That's horrendous. And whatever our solution to it is, it's something that we need to take extremely seriously. And I would want to hear Harvard presidents and whatever other presidents denouncing that forcefully. But then when we start getting into discussions of intifada, whether they're chance or not, right? It's a university campus. It's never going to be elegant, right? I'm not joining that protest. I would sit there and anybody's listened to the stuff that we put out on this. I, I've spelled out what the first and second intifada have meant, right? And it's often meant targeted killings of civilians. Uh, and then in certain other cases, it's meant throwing stones, et cetera. And obviously people can go back and listen to all that. I do think on a college campus, people should be free to talk about that, discuss it, debate it. And I don't think Elise Stefanik's very narrow interpretation of it is the only one that exists. And so I think we should protect the ability of universities to discuss issues like that. Now, should universities be discussing whether the Holocaust existed or not? <laughs> no, that's not a good, you know, I don't think that's a worthy endeavor and is usually evidence that somebody has some sinister ulterior motive, right? But I don't think it's, we need at least Stefanik to stop that, right? Like the university should have their own sort of standards of academic practice that weed out that kind of useless exercise, right? Yeah, I mean, I'd like to see them do some sort of major committee or conference on free speech and recommit in an ideologically neutral way to those values. I haven't really seen that robust of an effort to do so, but we'll see. Senators Merkley and Adam and Congressman Adam Smith have introduced a piece of legislation in the U.S. Senate and U.S. House uh, on Thursday that over a 10-year period is going to require hedge funds and large institutional investors to completely divest from single-family home ownership. Um, this is going to require them to sell off 10% of their homes each year over a decade. It's going to leverage the IRS to tax these funds uh, that fail to sell off their single-family homes over that time frame. And uh, what they cite in support of this bill is data from the Urban Institute, which showed that in 2011, no single entity owned more than a thousand single family homes as of that year. But by June of 2022, so a decade later, hedge funds and other institutional investors owned 574,000 single family homes around the country. And one single company, which is Invitation Homes, which is a, a spinoff of Blackstone, as of 2022, owned more than 80,000 homes. Corporate investors own 5% of single-family homes in this country, mostly concentrated in Black and Latino neighborhoods, and this is picking up rapidly. So as in, in the pandemic especially, so in 2022, 28% of homes in 2022 were sold to institutional investors and people like Jeff Bezos and are getting in the game, starting companies, scooping this up. Ricky, I'm genuinely curious to see where you come down on this. I, I'm kind of 50-50 in my own odds in my head. Do you, do you think this is a good idea? No. I mean, I understand the reason or the problem that they're diagnosing, that there is the potential of a generation of, of lifelong lent, uh, renters here, which is what, and they're they're hoping to help the individual homeowner. I don't think this is the solution, particularly because 
hundred percent, there's a, a a major problem in the fact that these new entities are buying up homes, sometimes entire blocks. But I think that it's naive to think the market will naturally respond in a healthy way to this incremental shift. Not to like downplay at all the struggle that people have in order to make a down payment, and especially in this sort of market right now. But I think that there are there are people who are interested in renting homes from a hedge fund or or from whomever who might not have enough savings or who still want flexibility or who might not be able to afford a mortgage rate right now or at you know any arbitrary time that ten percent of this housing stock pops up. I mean, I think it's it's naive to expect that there will be a clamoring for that ten percent or that that's even practical, um, especially considering that, you know, I think they would start divesting in in probably concentrated ways or in concentrated areas where they're making the least money. And then you'll probably have like a sudden market shift and and homes that are available without a meaningful group of people who want to move into them in lower income areas. Like I don't think the first 10% they're divesting are going to be the most expensive and fruitful ones that they can rent out the most. Um, so that concerns me. I also don't understand how, if they're going to put it at a $50 million value of the assets that a hedge fund or, or private equity firm would have to hold in order to be required to divest. I mean, I think that we'll just see inevitably smaller firms and people splintering out their firms and and splitting and and having a smaller amount of value and like a you know if you have a hundred million dollar hedge fund why not just split that into two and then you can continue to do the same thing with impunity um so i just don't think that it's practical i think that it's a diagnosis of a real problem but it's not fixing the underlying issues that are causing housing to be so unavailable to people and I would much rather see them going after zoning laws or making new constructions easier or figuring out a better way to onboard young people into the the housing system or into the homeownership chapter of their lives. But I don't think that just arbitrarily forcing companies that rightfully purchase property is the move. I generally support these. And I think this is... This is where I'm curious, like, what does populism mean if not the ability to step in and prevent concentration of wealth in essential areas of life? Like this gets to, you know, last week I talked to Bethany McLean about the private equity consolidation of the healthcare industry and people can go back and listen to that and like all of the incredible negative effects of what that's done in our life. And we are in the beginning phases of this in housing. People will say, ah, oh, it's only a small percentage, but this is a new phenomenon. Like this only happened, this concentration only started to begin in response to the housing crisis and really has only accelerated in recent years. And my general feeling is we should not have concentration of essential assets in the hands of a few. And, you know, the, the sort of obvious tinkering with the bill that you suggest, I think this is stuff that, given this is a proposal, people can figure out, right? So if it's 50 million, maybe we make it even lower. And maybe there's a requirement that if, there is, if there's common ownership in multiple entities that are buying these up, then they're treated as one, right? So if it's one PE firm spinning off multiple versions that they have common ownership of, like Blackstone or something, then they're treated as one and we add up all of the assets of all of those different entities. But my sense is 
there are many reasons why we as a society should not want these groups scooping up all of our assets, especially since a lot of these groups are foreign owned. So this is an opportunity for foreign entities to come in and buy up the some of the most important pieces of assets that we have as a country and that we depend upon. I also think that the data here is really fascinating from what we know so far. We don't know a lot about the long term because this is a relatively new phenomenon. But the you know reason talked about this uh, June 2023 study that came out of Netherlands, which I think largely supports the position of the people who oppose this legislation, which showed that although it you know banning private entities, large private entities from buying uh, single family homes did increase middle income home ownership. It did, however, tend to lead to more wealthy people, higher income people uh, moving into neighborhoods at the expense of renters and lower income people. But that's one study in the Netherlands. And, and honestly, I think Reason does this a decent amount. They kind of cherry picked that study. There are many studies specific to the United States, including a November 2022 study called Keeping Up with the Blackstones by a University of Michigan professor and an Oxford professor that showed that, uh, yes, these PE firms coming in increase diversity in an area because there are more renters, but it also increases prices of the houses and the rents in areas. It also uh, leads to tax losses because these PE firms are really aggressive at negotiating with the assessors and they they charge that to $4.1 billion in lost revenue. And there's other studies that we'll, we'll cite in the, the show notes that show basically this, which is diversity increases when PE firms come in and buy up a bunch of areas and rent them out. But by a lot of other measures, people are worse off. And that to me is like, makes a lot of sense. Like th- these are trade-offs. And I think the tiebreaker for me is that these are firms that haven't acquitted themselves well in any other area of American life. And so I wouldn't trust them with housing. Well, the issue I'm taking is the divestment, the forced divestment issue, because regardless, like these are sure they're large entities, but they've utilized the system as it existed and had the right to do so. And it's concerning to me that it's 5% of single family housing stock. However, that has been done within the bounds of our existing law. I don't believe in in forcing someone to divest from a legitimate business acquisition that they made. I also would be concerned about how that divestment is going to disproportionately impact people in lower income areas because that's the most obvious thing to divest or you know disproportionately harm and just artificially distort the housing market in areas where these are highly concentrated. I mean, imagine if you would just scrap together your your life savings to put a down payment on a home before interest rates went up recently. And then all of a sudden, 100 units in your neighborhood are, are suddenly for sale. And the value of your home that you actually legitimately bought as an individual is wildly distorted from the fact that the government forced divestment in an area that you invested yep. in with the understanding of that context. I mean, I'm just, we agree that this is no, a I'm problem. No, I'm with you on that. But, but we agree that this is a I'm problem. With you I on just that. don't think that the divestment thing is, frankly, fair. I mean, you can say that they utilized loopholes or that they were abusive of the legal system, but frankly, they didn't do anything illegal. And I don't think it's the government's right to come in and, and nuke people's businesses. However, I would say a solution is to, like, 
you know, have more targeted taxes on future acquisitions that they might make or something like that. Like fight the trend going forward. You can't reverse the free market retroactively. I'm with you on, I'm not sold on the divestiture either, especially since they, even though they've been accelerating, they they still don't have, you know, this critical market share, except in certain areas. I, I certainly am, am on board with a ban moving forward. Uh, and, you know, my opposition to the divestiture isn't really moral. Like, I, I don't really care what's fair to a private equity firm or not, but I do care whether it has negative effects on everybody around them. And I do agree with you that the concentrated divestiture could wreak havoc on certain neighborhoods. Uh, there is one other study that is fascinating here, and this is from the Review of Financial Studies, January 2023. And this looked at particularly the Southwest and South. And I'll quote from the study, quote, across neighborhoods where there was an acquisition that netted five or more properties for the acquiring firm. So this is not necessarily huge firms. Average rents increased 5.2% while crime reports to law enforcement decreased 5.5% for the following year. The authors also observe more job postings for local security guards in the year after an acquisition, while streetlight radiance, referring to the streetlight brightness, also increases. Eviction rates in those neighborhoods affected by an acquisition that netted five or more properties also increase by 4.4%. So it is a mixed story, right? Like it's not all negative, not all positive. And so I think this is where I think your larger sort of number one trust in these institutions and number two is theory of like, do you think in this case, how do you, how do you weigh the trade-offs, right? Like better for renters, better for diversity, but probably worse for overall home ownership rates, et cetera. I mean, you can kind of go back and forth, right? Like I, I do think this is like a tough call depending on what your theory of government is. Well, I think my ultimate takeaway is I'm entirely disinterested in seeing a federal level attack on this. I mean, this just doesn't make sense to me. I think it's very different from, you know, rural versus urban or or however wealth is distributed in a particular area. I mean, I just think that it it's it papers over a lot of nuances in the housing market across the country. And I'd much rather see, you know, states decide if they want to be more open to hedge fund investment coming in or to fight back against it. Well, Ricky, uh, your populist test number two is up for this episode. So the like Biden administration like trying to frame me as a Bernie bro. Like that's not the kind of populism that I'm You I'm, called yourself a populist last week. No, so I'm I, just I don't I'm just don't, testing you out here. I, I mean, right and left wing populism are entirely different. I just have a, a populist energy, not big government populism, mm. though. Populist energy. Well, yeah. uh, I believe in the well, wisdom of the people. Let's see where your populist energy takes you today. So let's see. I, I think I'm surprising myself by what I'm supporting in this episode, because I'm obviously, I've, I've described myself as an anti-populist, but, but I'm about to go two for two on these ones. Maybe this is why I'm a Democrat. The Biden administration has unveiled a framework outlining factors federal agencies can consider in deciding whether to use a controversial policy called margin rights, which take uh, patents for drugs developed with taxpayer funds and share them with other pharmaceutical companies if the public cannot reasonably access the medications. This is being framed as a seizure of patents. So basically, the Biden administration is saying, look, if we fund as the government, 
which they do a lot. Uh, we'll get into it. The development of a drug. We have the ability to step in and license that drug if certain factors come into play. And I think the biggest piece of this that makes it exceptional is that uh, for the first time, the Biden administration is saying that government officials can factor in a medication's price in deciding to break a patent. This is a big break from the past because the Trump administration proposed the opposite. They actually wanted to prevent the government from taking into account uh, the price of a drug alone in making these types of determinations. Well, I guess I know we're going to come out now, Ricky, but tell me, how do you feel about this? Well, I mean, I think that the problem here is these are retroactive attempts at revoking promises or or trying to change something that already has happened in the past. And perhaps as like there are elements of, of legislative mistake and funneling over tax money to big pharma companies. And however, I I just don't believe that you can retroactively revoke a patent that you've granted. I just don't think that's good policy. Let me make the case that this is not retroactive. So the the Biden administration is using as its authority a 1980 law called the Bayh-Dole Act of 1980. And this law says the following, this is 35 USC section 203, which allows a federal agency, quote, to grant a non-exclusively, partially exclusive or exclusive license in any field of use to a responsible applicant or applications upon terms that are reasonable under the circumstances. Uh, And I think a good example of this is this drug called Xtandi. And so the administration had previously declined to break the patent of this, but now it looks like they might be gearing up to do so. So uh, as for background of this, drug makers charge more than $150,000 a year for Xtandi in the U.S., before insurance or other rebates. This is a fraction of what it charge, they charge in other countries. So a single 40 milligram tab can run $66 on the US federal supply schedule and sometimes can go up as much as $100 a capsule. So if you compare this to other countries, it's $21 in Japan, 22 in, in Canada, 44 in Denmark. Now you could say, well, you know, these other countries may have different policies, but what's fascinating is that Xtandi was invented at the University of California, Los Angeles, on grants from the U.S. government. And if you look at the three patents on Xtandi listed in the FDA, all three disclose uh, NIH funding. And this is like pretty part and parcel. The U.S. has among the highest drug prices in the world, though subsidizes them heavily for the rest of the world. So from 2019, the U.S., uh, the NIH alone invested approximately $230 billion in funding. So they're funding these. The law says when they fund these, and you accept that funding, you as a pharmaceutical company, once you decide to accept that funding, you are now under the purview of the bylaw of 1980. The Biden administration is saying, you know what? We're putting you on notice now. We may decide to license that patent out for certain reasonable uses. Well, just to clarify, the margin rates have never been invoked with price being factored in ever before. And I do worry about that precedent and disincentivizing innovation or limiting research and development reinvestment that these companies may have factored in going forward. I I mean, I completely agree. I'm I'm no friend of big pharma and I'm also no um, supporter of, of funneling tax money into this sort of, I mean, what should be a free market entity. And I think that that's part of the, the mess that we're in right now is these are like federally funded overly rich entities that have not been exposed to free market pressures in meaningful ways in part as a result of these patents. But I also, I think a better situation would be to 
impose a reasonability threshold uh, in, during development and get in the process of granting these patents. But I mean, I'm, I'm completely sympathetic to the fact that three in 10 Americans are struggling to pay for drugs, that people are spending annually uh, $1,200 per person on prescriptions, and that we've spent billions in our tax dollars to, to fund the development of these drugs. And yet, they're they're out of reach for a lot of the taxpayers who paid into them. So I, I completely understand this issue. I just I think this is a really large power grab with unprecedented consequences and I think would would also potentially harm and and cause these these companies to move some of their funds away from research and and development going forward. So I just think you know, change the threshold for the future is my consistent viewpoint on these retroactive and and I think overbroad exertions of governmental authority in the past two segments we've talked about. Yeah, I think like, you view it as a power grab. I, I view it as a use of authority that the government has. Uh, and I think like, yes, it hasn't been used before, but also healthcare costs, even indexed to inflation, have never been this high. And when you look at it, you know, across the board, the U.S. is subsidizing these companies. They accept that money. When they accept that money, then they put themselves under the purview of this law. And the numbers are staggering. As of 2018, the Rand Corporation showed that the U.S. is spending 2.56 times higher than comparable countries. And this has been shown by one study after another and on drug prices specifically. And so I generally speaking support this. I support the Biden administration move to allow Medicare to negotiate prescription drug prices. I support the cap on insulin at $35 per month for seniors. Like by and large, I, I'm like a, you know, throw the kitchen sink at this issue to try to solve it because it is absurd. You know, we did an episode on it in the context of hospital corporations and everything, but it is absurd uh, how expensive healthcare is in this country. And uh, if you look at the co- the profits of these companies, these are some of the most profitable companies in the world, and they're uniquely profitable because of this country. Yeah, and they're absolute bedfellows with the government. I mean, the pandemic was the perfect demonstration of that. There you go. That's why I think there's common ground here. Uh, you know, I think there's skepticism on against pharmaceutical companies across the board here, and so I do think, you know, do I think the Biden administration is going to you know thread the needle on the politics on this? I would be surprised. Uh, but I do think that I wouldn't be shocked if I saw the Josh Hawley types coming out in support of this. They, they've kind of flirted with it in the past. You know, we'll yeah. see. I would just prefer a reassessment of these relationships going forward. Like a lot of these things seem like kind of whack-a-mole on certain specific symptoms or issues that have developed as a result of bad government policies and like exercising authority to stomp out some of the consequences without actually pulling back and saying, like, should we fundamentally rethink the relationship between the government and these private entities going forward? Or should we just like randomly revoke specific patents when the price becomes too much rather than, you know, have a, a deeper conversation about the granting of patents in the first place and the use of taxpayer dollars in the first place? Yeah. Well, to be continued, we'll see if they if they exercise this power throughout this year uh, or whether they're merely trying to sort of create a public perception around their their decision to, I guess, like signal that they have the power. I don't know, is it because, you know, there is one statement after another from people like Elizabeth Warren 
heralding the administration over this. Was that all this is about, or do they actually want to do this? We'll see. Um, I don't like jawboning federal government policies of just vague threats. I don't think that's good either. I actually think they're going to use this power in part because if you read the, the Biden administration policy on this, they list out like 15 different things they're trying to do in order to cut healthcare costs. And I actually think it's a really interesting read. People can read it uh, in the uh, show notes and actually touches on a lot of different episodes we've done of this podcast, whether it's what we talked about with Bethany McLean around hospital consolidation, nursing homes, et cetera. Like um, you, you could read it, everybody, and you'll see that they have a theory of using every potential government power that they have to decrease healthcare costs. And you can read how they want to go about that. Voicemails. Uh, let's just do one. Um, I had a question uh, from a listener who asked me a personal question. So whenever I get these, I, I uh, if it's a question that I think you, the audience has, um, I want to make sure I address it. So let's play this and then I'll um, get to the bottom of what she's asking. Hey, this is Ricky. You've reached the last debate. If you have some feedback for us, leave it after the tone. Hi, this is Rachel. I'm a huge fan of the podcast, and I tell as many people as I can about it and how great you guys are, which is a preface to a very unrelated question about Ravi that seems to come up over and over and over again, and I it's just really been bugging me, and I hope Ravi will answer it, even though it's a personal question and has nothing to do with the content of the podcast. Ravi, you say many times that you grew up in poverty with a single mother, but you also said your father is a doctor. Please explain. Thank you. Great question. Actually, I think it gets to something that was said in an Asian-American episode. So let me play this clip because I think she misunderstood what I was saying. As somebody who is like in part raised uh, imperfectly because I was mostly raised by my mom, but my dad brought that sort of Asian-American ethos to, all right, I came from poverty and I came here because I excelled on a, on a standardized test and a series of achievable academic metrics. And that was my ticket out of poverty. Now, in front of me is like this series of achievable aims, like do really well in math, reading, score well on tests, know your academics really well, get great grades. That's a, a predictable path to success that Asians are, at least my Asian American family, and it seems like the data seems to suggest a lot of them, seem to grapple with, grapple onto and say, this is our ticket to the American dream. So, okay, so you know, at least in that context, what I'm saying is when I say I, I was quoting my dad and say, I came to this country, I came from poverty. Now, how I grew up, like to the extent people are interested, my dad left when I was a kid. So I only rebuilt my relationship with my dad starting when I was in late high school. And, you know, I think I've talked about it in, in episodes before, but yes, it forced my mom to work two jobs. Yes, it put a lot of pressure on us, but I don't know if I would classify it as poverty. That would be an exaggeration. But my dad grew up in poverty uh, and I got to see that firsthand when I visited in India. And that's what I was talking about in that clip. So that hopefully clears up that part of it. But yeah, I wasn't raised by my dad. My dad moved down to Alabama when I was a little kid and you know, it was kind of a gnarly situation. He disappeared for a long time and we had to hire a private investigator to find him. And uh, it was ugly, uh, but you know, we don't have a lot of time on this earth with our parents. And so he and I have put it past us and rebuilt our relationship over the years. And um, yeah, I imagine a lot of people have situations like that, but yeah, um, that, that hopefully clarifies some of that. Uh, but thank you all for listening. Thank you for the question. And 
And I and I get it, especially given when you listen back to that clip. Uh, but our voicemail is 321-200-0570. Keep sending them in. Keep sending in those uh, reviews and share the episodes with your friends as we uh, come to the end of the year. We're seeing a lot of growth in our audience. And I know that's because of you recommending this to people in your lives. Thank you very much, everybody. 